You are listening to Coronavirus Special, brought to you by EBRD. Hello and welcome to the latest in this series of digital conversations organised by the Office of the Chief Economist of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, the EBRD. My name is Tony Williams. I'm the Director of External Communications at the bank. It's coming up to a year since we first heard of the coronavirus, but already then the IMF was warning about a high and rising levels of debt in developing economies. Now, almost a year later, after several rounds of lockdowns and severe economic restrictions imposed globally, debt is rising almost as fast as the pandemic itself. According to UNCTA, the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, developing countries' repayments on their public external debts will cost 2.6 to $3.4 trillion in 2020 and 2021 alone. The IMF has issued a stark warning that African states alone face a financing gap of $345 billion through 2023 to deal with the pandemic and its economic impact. The question is what next and how do we deal with the global rising levels of indebtedness? Are we facing another lost decade of austerity and growing inequality? I'm joined by three outstanding thinkers on the subject. Carmen Reinhardt was appointed Chief Economist of the World Bank this year. Martin Wolf left the World Bank in 1981. Since 1996, he's been one of the most influential commentators on economics across the globe as the Chief Economics Commentator of the Financial Times. Beata Javorczyk also started her career at the World Bank, but she was appointed Chief Economist of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development just a year ago in 2019. Let's start off. It's been it's been a fairly <laughs> dramatic uh, month uh, on the on the on the debt whole debt program um, and debt issue. The IMF and World Bank have had their meetings. The G20 met. Uh, Martin Wolf's co uh, colleague Chris Giles uh, this month wrote about the week that uh, austerity was officially buried. The FT thought that was a not a bad thing, and sh an austerity shouldn't be mourned, uh, Carmen Reinhardt has, 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 has said, we're fighting a war, we need to figure out how to pay for it. Afterwards, um, the IMF orthodoxy, the high priestess of orthodoxy seems to have turned uh, volt fast after 75 years. So there, there's a lot of determination to act and to, 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 to be radical. That said, we had the G20 meeting where maybe the response was at best uh, two cheers. Uh, Larry Summers said it was like squirting a gun, at a, a, a squirt gun at a conflagration. So maybe the, the responses are not as, as ambitious as, as, as the um, willingness to do something. So let's get to the questions. I'd like to first start with, with Carmen Reinhardt. Um, an open question. What are the main risks you see in the context of growing debt? Um, and is, are there distinctions between advanced and uh, developing countries, you've talked about a rising level of debt, in, uh, of debt intolerance in developing countries. So what are the main, the really are the main risks? Well, the, the main risk, the main fear is that some variant, it won't be, won't be the same, doesn't have the same origins, but the effects could be similar. The main fear is that there's a replay of the 1980s and that growth in debt leads to debt servicing difficulties, leads to protracted 
debt crises that remain unresolved. And in that period, what you see is a major setback to development. Uh, you see quite a lot of stagnation. So that's the main fear. The reason why it's a well-grounded uh, fear is that, uh, as you already noted in your opening remarks, uh, many developing countries and a lot of the poorer countries entered the COVID crisis with already a high degree of vulnerability on the debt front. Uh, that, so that is one major source of concern. And the other major source of concern is that, you know, looking really far back into history at the processes of debt restructuring. Uh, there are a few that are encouraging that occur quickly, occur efficiently and resolve the debt overhang. But for the most part, the experience is, is, is one of very protracted back and forth between debtors and creditors before getting it right, which raises the, the specter of the lost decade. That's, that's, that's a main fear. Okay, thank you very much, Carmen, Carmen Reinhardt. Martin Wolf, you've, you've called in, in your um, articles for radical solutions to, to, the, to the debt um, problem. Are, 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 the, are, the, are the responses radical enough? Um, which debt relief measures do you see as the most effective in what is obviously a, a, an unprecedented crisis? Well, let me just go back to first to what Carmen said. I think this crisis has underlined the most fundamental uh, financial macroeconomic inequality in the world which is there are countries, um, we know who they are, which can basically spend what they want because they are able to use their central banks uh, to finance effectively their treasuries, uh, their currencies are internationally acceptable, and at least in the medium term, we discussed the longer term, um, they can spend whatever they want and run deficits um, and accumulate debts on a simply gigantic scale. And we know who, which of these countries are. They're basically the major developed countries um, and they are doing this. Uh, then in the emerging and developing world, they can only spend what, as it were, what they can. And what they can is in very significant measure limited by their capacity to finance themselves in foreign currencies. I mean, obviously the dollar is the most important, but it's not the only one. And they don't control that currency. And so as soon as they're in a crisis of this kind, um, immense crisis, they, they run up into limits on uh, the debt side. They're a capacity to borrow and the capacity to roll over debt and the capacity to service debt. And if those get to real difficulties, they are driven to default. And then um, their uh, fiscal flexibility, financial flexibility basically disappears. And that's what Carmen has talked about. And the worst example of that obviously was, as she says, the Latin American debt crisis of the 80s, um, the 10 last years. And I think that's what we're confronting. So that's the major reality. Now, the only way this constraint can be lifted is by a combination of two things. One, to write down or restructure outstanding debts radically because they went into the 
crisis, many of them with already a lot of debt, particularly in the private sector, that has to happen um, while keeping the economy in one piece. And that's a very difficult thing to do. And then they need new funds. That's not enough. They're going to need new funds to finance imports uh, related to the pandemic um, in a situation when often a lot of their important export industries, tourism, for example, have been hammered. Um, and they, so what we are focusing on here is a rerun of the very limited financial capacity of emerging and developing countries. Now, finally, third, what is the solution? Well, my view has been ever since the early 2000s that we need a sovereign debt restructuring mechanism, which was proposed by Ann Kruger back in the early 2000s and was killed by the Americans and will no doubt be killed again now, but maybe with a change in the presidency no longer. And we need new funding. And I think we have inadequate funding from the official community for em emerging and developing countries. And uh, I've strongly supported uh, a new SDR um, allocation for that reason. But that seems to me the intellectual context in which we should view where we are. At the moment, the discussion is only about debt deferment at the moment. When, when does this have to move to the next stage, Martin, perhaps? Uh, when uh, debt deferment isn't a, is obviously not enough. This is less of a problem if, if uh, countries in this situation can borrow more or get more from the international community. But I'm, I would guess, Carmen knows much more about this and Beata too, that that, those, the, that ability is going to run out fairly soon. And I'm particularly concerned that the COVID crisis, the pandemic, is going to continue for quite a long time. And so some part of next year, we're going to see a lot of distressed borrowers. I hope that's not true, but that I think is what Carmen was suggesting in her answer to you. And at that stage, obviously, something has to be done. I would have to, I mean, to go back to, you mentioned the G20. I think in general, the, the international response on the part of the major developed countries, the countries with the fiscal financial capacity, which I mentioned, has been pretty disappointing and very weak. And there's no great mystery and much weaker than it was in response to the global financial crisis. And part of the reason for that is that was a very domestic crisis for them. And part of them, the reason is that um, there is no united, there's, there isn't a united developed world. Uh, deeply um, pathologically divided and I and also divided from China. So it's very difficult to get a shared response, anything like what happened in 20, 2009 um, to the global financial crisis is very, very disappointing. And that's the context within which emerging and developing countries are now working. And it's not a very satisfactory one. Thank, thank you for that, Martin. I think we'll get back to the to the whole question of the collective response a little later. Beata, can I can I ask you the main um, debate so far, or in the G20 especially, has been about the uh, the poorest countries, and quite rightly so. The countries where the EBRD invests, only a handful of them are eligible for 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 the deferments under under the G20 plan. So where where does that leave the 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 um, middle income, the transition countries that the EBRD is working in? Well, thank you, Tony. So far, our countries have been in a pretty comfortable situation. Um, their fiscal space this year has been much greater than 20 years ago. 
they are able to borrow at much lower interest rates than they were able to do uh, five years ago. Of course, there are exceptions, Lebanon, Tunisia, Belarus, these are countries that have faced uh, a sharp increase in borrowing costs. But overall, our countries are doing reasonably well. Now, of course, their debt to GDP ratio is going to go up this year by on average 11 percentage points. And in countries such as Greece, it will be 30 percentage points. In Kyrgyz Republic and Montenegro, by a quarter of GDP. Interestingly, only a third of this is new borrowing. The rest is due to sharp contraction in GDP and exchange rate movement. Many of our countries have reasonably high exposure um, to foreign currency denominated debt, so they cannot be complacent. Though when we look at movements of currencies relative to what happened during the uh, global financial crisis, um, their currencies dropped by much less now than then. What is more worrisome um, for me is the issue of corporate debt and non-performing loans. But perhaps we will come back to this later in the discussion. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we could, um, Martin was talking about the lack of a collective response. Um, Carmen Reinhardt, um, David Malpass spoke specifically uh, in the context of the G20 about the fact that not all of the Chinese creditors were um, joining in. What, what is needed, and this is a question to all three of you, but I mean, Carmen maybe first, but what is needed to, to engage um, China in the process more, more, more strongly? Well, let me address the issue of China, but let me address the issue more broadly too. As you know, the uh, DSSI, the debt suspension initiative temporary was introduced in May. And in May, vision at the time was one in which uh, it would encourage on a voluntary basis, much more participation. Therefore, the amount of uh, resources that could be diverted away from debt service into emergency spending would be considerably more than what's actually happened. So it's fallen short. And this, now I go to your question. Well, the, you know, in, in, in my, in work done a couple of years ago, I've been, you know, documenting that the, the, surge, not growth, surge in Chinese overseas financing, uh, which was importantly concentrated in commodity producers and geographically probably more concentrated in Africa than elsewhere, although it's present in Asia, in the Middle East, in, 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 in Latin America. And so part of the uh, reason for the disappointing uh, uh, results of the DSSI, part of it lies in the fact that the largest official creditor, the, big, the creditor that is bigger than all the Paris Club creditors combined, is not fully participating. That is to say, uh, you know, there are two big lending uh, institutions, the Exim, the China Exim Bank, and the China Development Bank. And the response by the Chinese authorities is to say, okay, 
you know, the XM Bank is indeed an official institution, but the CDB is not. It's a private institution. Therefore, its participation uh, in the SSI is a separate matter. And, and I'll conclude with this, uh, um, the bottom line is private creditors uh, have been even more disappointing because uh, the expectation back in May is that there would be uh, some, you know, move forward with, with uh, private creditor participating in the DSSI initiative. That has not happened. So between the half attempt uh, on the part of China and, and, and the lack of private sector participation, those temporary debt relief measures have not been uh, as deep as, as, as one would have hoped. And at any rate, I think at this stage, we need to move on, uh, as Martin was saying, to, you know, beyond the temporary, uh, to more, you know, to more sustained um, uh, resolution. And to get to the more sustained resolution, there also, I think, has to be a willingness to encompass more radical uh, um, debt restructuring approach than simply, okay, let's just extend maturities a little and then go back to the drawing board, uh, you know, in a year's time and do it all over again, but not get resolved. This is not an unrealistic scenario. This is precisely also what happened in a lot of cases during the 1980s uh, in which countries had five, six, seven, and eight you know, uh, debt negotiations that really did not tackle uh, the debt overhang. So I think more broadly than China, more broadly than the private sector, the uh, international community has to become uh, aware that, that you, when you're going in at debt relief for a problem this big, uh, it has, it, as, as Martin was highlighting, it really does have to be encompassing and, and substantive. The, the G20 talked about and, and, and announced a, a common framework. Is that is that meaningless, in, given what you've just said? And I'll ask Martin to comment so on that. No. The common framework has not been issued yet. It exists. It was discussed. It was drafted. But it was not yet issued by the G20. But there are meetings now in early November where the common framework is, uh, you know, the, 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 the main uh, topic of discussion. The common framework, um, you know, lays out uh, the need to go beyond temporary debt relief that, you know, it, it acknowledges the problem that, 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 that the debt issues are, are of a more, you know, uh, chronic, if you will, or, or more uh, uh, fundamental uh, basis than just the temporary emergency. The common framework also highlights that the, the approach is on a country by country basis. It doesn't move in the direction at this stage of anything akin to an SDRM or to a Brady plan or to, you know, something more uh, unified. Who is going to put flesh on, on, on this framework then? Who, who's working on that and who, who, when does it need to be ready by? So the expectation is that the G20 will deliver uh, a common framework uh, in November. 
Mm -hmm. And, you know, that that will be part of its deliberations. In terms of influence, you might imagine that it is, as Martin was saying, a very fragmented China, for example, does not at all embrace, that would be an understatement to, to put it the way I did, uh, the idea of debt write-offs. The, the, you know, the approach to debt restructuring that has been adopted to date by China is one where you extend the maturities, you keep the market uh, terms, rates of interest, and offer perhaps some short-term debt relief, usually uh, uh, suspension, temporary suspension, or, or you know, uh, grace period, I should say, uh, on principle but not on interest. Uh, so it is not, you know, by any means what one would call a very encompassing. Uh, restructuring. So there's tension there. And, but it goes to the point that Martin made that the, the, the interests of the creditors are much better represented yeah. than the interests of the debtors. And maybe, Martin, to go back to your point again about the, if creditors aren't, don't have a common voice, is, is there also a possibility that the developing uh, countries themselves also don't have a, have a common voice? And is there some resistance also to the sorts of steps that might be taken. Um, one remembers um, resistance sometimes to IMF programs because of the stigma attached to, to IMF conditions and the fact that one had anywhere an IMF program. Is there resistance from some developing countries as well to the sorts of um, responses that people are, are saying are good, for, uh, ought, to be, ought to be embraced? Well, there's certainly always been a stigma, stigma problems of various kinds. Carmen can speak to that, I'm sure, in much greater depth than I do, because these tend to be quite nation-specific. But obviously, countries are, unless they're in desperate shape, they're Argentina, as it were, which you know, is in the situation scene. But countries don't want to, to go around the world with a great big flag saying, I'm in te terrible trouble. I mean, that's pretty obvious. So uh, I would like somebody else to do it. Also, there are very many developing and emerging countries. They have very different interests, um, different scale, different sorts of debt problems. Sovereign, is it? Is it non-financial corporates, the financial, all these things. So historically, the, the emerging and developing countries who are affected by debt aren't an effective, uh, aren't effective. They need... Uh, their interest to be channeled in some way. Uh, and of course, the international financial institutions play an important role in this. So I'm going to invert this uh, um, just to, to fill out a little bit more about how I think about debt management. So Carmen has talked about the, uh, rightly about the Latin American debt crisis. If you look at the major debt crises involving emerging countries, historically, which I would say the last before this was uh, the Asian one. So just think about the Latin American crisis, the tequila crisis, the Asian financial crisis. Who fixed it uh, to the extent it was fixed? It was a mess. The answer is very simple. The US Treasury. The US Treasury. Um, why? Because it's the world's most important, was the world's most important economic power. It had the world's dominant reserve currency and it led the Western world, which was, sorry, 
the world, the Western world for this purpose obviously includes Japan and that's very important in the context of the Asian crisis, but it was the US Treasury in all cases. Um, US Treasury is AWOL, absent without leave. It's pretty obvious. It's not completely destructive, but God knows it's not very imaginative. And in the Latin American crisis, the, the I would say the uh, the US Treasury got there about six years too late. Carmen can comment on that in detail, but they did get there in the end. So that's the first thing. The second problem they have, even if you had a US Treasury able to coordinate, solve the coordination problem effectively among the creditors, uh, which we don't, maybe we will in a few months, or maybe we won't, um, they have two other big problems, which Carmen has brought out very clearly. Up to and including the Asian crisis, the dominant creditors were a relatively limited number of banks. And they told them what to do. I mean, I follow very closely the Korean crisis in, in uh, what was that, late 97, early 98. And they corralled the banks and they told them what they were going to do. And exactly the same, of course, happened in the early uh, 1980s. Unfortunately, they corralled them to, uh, to save the banks, not Latin America. That's a scandal, but that's an old history. Now you have vastly more creditors, uh, bonds, funds, so with very different interests. They're much more difficult to organize than they used to be. And then we've got China. So even if we had an effective leader in the US, and it would still be the US, which has of course declined in relative importance as a creditor and as a player, the, the universe of, um, of creditors is so much more complicated. This is why, you know, it's because of these sorts of problems that we have bankruptcy processes domestically, because that's how you, you fix it. And we need a bankruptcy process to internationally. The trouble is, of course, to do that, you need profound agreement among creditors that that's necessary. And getting such agreement now among the relevant creditors, including China, seems to be impossible. So I'm afraid I am really depressed about this situation. And I think we're going to have a lot of very messy defaults, really messy and economically ruinous defaults. And that's presumably why Carmen is telling us we could have another 10 last years, because in the default situation, nobody's going to lend. And the countries will be frozen out of capital markets and it'll be a disaster. I'm putting it as bleakly as I can, because I think we shouldn't pretend that what's going on now is in any way good. And I'm probably not being part of the official community can put it in the most brutal and blunt manner. Thank you very much, Martin. Um, Carmen, you, you have already spoken openly about the, 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 the threat of a, of a, a financial crisis. Um, so, what needs to happen to avoid that? Or is, is, it, is it as bleak as Martin says and inevitable? I don't know that it is inevitable everywhere, but it's certainly well underway. Uh, so, you know, obviously things can be done to um, uh, contain the damage and to speed resolution. But I think there, we should not underestimate, I call it the quieter crisis because, you know, obviously, you know, the disease uh, and, 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 you know, the, the, the shock of the pandemic, the shock of seeing output collapses and employment uh, uh, collapses of the magnitudes that we've seen 
take center stage. But behind that, behind that, the households that lose their jobs and don't regain them quickly have difficulty servicing debt. Those small and medium corporates, including you know restaurants, the service industry that has been so hard, there's going to be uh, serious issues in, 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 in repayment loans. Beata was also speaking to this issue. I think the issue of corporate bankruptcies, uh, especially of the small, medium variety where the big support, the big umbrella support, the guarantees from the government are less likely. And households, you know, are, are already, uh, I think, undermining the quality of, of the asset side of banks. And this is happening globally, again, in varying degrees. I would say that we also don't hear about it more because we've had a lot of forbearance policies put into place. Um, understandably, you know, you want to, during the emergency, you want to provide, you know, provide liquidity and debt relief to the households and to the firms with or without the encouragement of the government. In some cases, it's been mandated. Other cases, it's come voluntarily from banks. But there's been a lot of, you know, policies of forbearance. But again, that's delaying repayment. It's not saying that you're still not liable uh, at the end of the road. And at the end of the road, I think is when we're going to find out who's insolvent and who is illiquid. And this has incredible bearing on the discussion we've been having because one big takeaway from the historical experience is that what often start as private debt become public debt after the crisis. Let's not forget that, you know, a little over 10 years ago, Ireland and Spain heavily hit during the global financial crisis. Those countries had public debts at the outset that were low by historic standard and by, you know, cross-national standard. Ireland's central government debt wasn't even, you know, 35%. It was below 35% at the time, yet it ballooned very quickly when it took on the private liabilities. I'm not saying, you know, because the orders of magnitude of the private sector in many countries, especially, you know, medium, you know, the, some of the poorer ones, is not on that scale uh, of what we saw in, in, in parts of Europe, in Ireland and, and in Spain and in other parts of Europe. There is this underlying fragility that will also feed back to the sovereign issues that we've been, you know, discussing here. Thank you. And just to remind uh, people watching either on Zoom or on Facebook, you can put your questions uh, to the organisers and we'll be, we'll be going to those questions in about 20 minutes. But Beata, I wanted to come back to you. We were talking about the, the, the lessons learned from the uh, last crisis, the global financial crisis. One of, one of the key problems during that crisis were um, debts and, and credits and uh, loans in foreign currency, has that remained a problem or were any lessons learned in that time that, that actually managed to, to overcome that problem to a certain extent? Obviously, it does remain a large problem. It does remain an issue. Uh, you know, there has been some improvement, but as I mentioned, many of the countries where we are active have exposure to foreign denominated debt. Of course, as an institution, we've been very active in building local currency markets. In many countries where we are active, entrepreneurs bear unlimited liability for their business debt. So they, will, they are going to be hit very hard pretty soon. Moreover, often it's the family and friends 
who are guaranteeing this debt. So if the entrepreneur is unable to, to repay, then family and friends will be hit. Uh, in some countries where we are active, there are separate procedures um, for dealing with that of natural persons and entrepreneurs. So you may have to actually go through two procedures and that's quite time consuming and costly, right? And you know, this is one of the lessons we should have learned after the financial crisis is that you want to free capital and labor and allow it to be used somewhere else. So we want to give entrepreneurs and second chance. And yet in many countries where we are active, these procedures are very slow and um, they are not very clear. They are very cumbersome. So there is a lot of room for improvement there. Now, Carmen mentioned that in times of crisis, private debt becomes public debt. And, and this is something um, that I see as a big issue. Um, if you look at post-communist countries, 45% of people favor expansion of public ownership. And that's public ownership in firms and in the industry. And if you look at how people have changed their views over last 20 years, this is increased by six percentage points in this positive perception of public ownership. So what, moreover, what we know is that in previous episodes of crisis, um, that when people go through them in their formative years, that undermines their trust in market economy. That tends to make them more positively predisposed to redistribution to public intervention. So as many countries have, are in a situation where support for public ownership is somewhere they're close to a majority view, actually after this pandemic, um, they may close this threshold. What we clearly see in the data that past epidemics predispose people more favorably um, to that. So we may see an increase in public involvement in industry, we may see governments taking equity stakes and, and outright nationalizations. Can, can we stick with that theme for, for a while? And um, uh, I'll ask Martin and, and Carmen to come in on that. Um, this is the, the, the transition report that um, the EBRD is presenting in a couple of weeks' time, talking about a greater role of the state. Um, EBRD was created in order to move towards a private economy, um, the state is growing bigger. What are the dangers of that? Maybe, Martin, can I ask you, what are the dangers of a well, I suppose approaching in, state influence? I think that one of the things we have been reminded, and I would suggest reminded rather than learnt, but of course, we tried very hard to forget it um, um, after the 1980s globally, um, is that in severe crises, uh, the state is the principal actor. And of course, it's even more so if the state has the room to act, which I've talked about already. And the, uh, so we were reminded that in the global financial crisis, when the state emerged essentially as the insurer of last resort uh, for the financial system and the economy, wherever it could, which was certainly true in the developed world. And of course, we 
one should, re just to underline the obvious, the central bank is a part of the state, uh, period. Um, and we're reminding you here because, you know, the, the, um, a pandemic is uh, a public bad problem par excellence. And of course the state is central and the state here is bound to manage both the pandemic and the economic and financial shocks. And my view is that these two enormous shocks coming really very close together, which is quite extraordinary, has transformed, I think everywhere, the attitude to the role of the state. Uh, we, that may turn out to be wrong, but I think it has transformed it. Um, there really aren't many libertarians left. And that's obvious on the right. We're getting, if I may put it brutally, we're getting a nationalist fascist right. We're not getting a libertarian right anymore. So this is a this is the future of politics. I think possibly worldwide. Uh, we probably don't want to go further into that. I've got lots of views, but again, I've got the responsibility of journalism. Final point, um, and this links with our earlier discussion about debts. If there's a lot of bad debt in the system, for whatever reason, the question is where it falls. And uh, historically, it has tended to fall on banking systems, directly or indirectly, as Carmen brought out. And banking systems are always a prime state concern. Governments do not, at least not since the 30s, allow their banking systems to collapse. So that means inevitably the state is the backstop, if it can be, if it can be. If it falls on private creditors, you know, owners of bond funds uh, in developed countries, the US or so forth, yeah, they will bear a lot of losses if they're allowed to, that'll be interesting, but they're sure not gonna lend anymore and fund funding will dry up on those bond funds and that will hit the emerging countries. And this is the crucial issue. If government is back as the backstop, some governments are vastly more able to be backstops than others. And the crisis of emerging countries, if this is how it plays out, is their states can't backstop in the way that the US state can, uh, or the German state can. And that's why this is such a big issue, because if it goes as badly as one fears, in many channels, there are many possible channels, there isn't ultimately a backstop. So they would like to have governments be the ultimate backstop, but the governments can't do the job because they lack essential resources, above all, an internationally acceptable currency. And this is the recurrent theme of emerging market finance, as Carmen has been stressing. I mean, there's the question of, of how capable and financially capable the, the state is of backstopping, but also is there the uh, question of the quality of institutions that one has to worry about um, as the state's influence grows. And maybe we'll ask that one to Carmen and then to Beata, because that also is a very relevant part of the, Obvious. Of, the, um, of, the, uh, of the report. Carmen, any thoughts about how, you, how, how we can avoid a weakening or how we can bolster institutions at a time when, when the state is going to have to play a, such an important role? You know, that's a tough one, but let me, I think also, you know, deal with the question you posed uh, earlier on the role of the state. Longer prosperity cycles relative to longer hard times 
change the balance, okay? Importantly, change the balance. Uh, you know, the big move towards uh, providing a social safety net and a larger size of government is no surprise in, you know, in the US and many other places occurred. It, you know, had a, 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 the depression of the 30s uh, was, was, was an important driver. And when I started at the IMF, you know, I was a young person a long, long time ago. Uh, the, 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 the big drive at the time was privatization. Now I was wondering, why are we having all these privatizations? Well, we were having all these privatizations because the state had assumed, you know, in all the countries that had debt difficulties, even leaving aside many of the EBRD countries, right? Because they were coming out of, you know, sort of a Soviet or semi-Soviet umbrella, but many of the countries that had had debt crisis in the 80s, um, you know, had gone the route of nationalize this and nationalize that. I mean, we're, we've been discussing the, the uh, you know, the government's role in stepping into, as they historically usually do, bail out the banking sector. But what about the airlines? Uh, what about, you know, large tracts of tourism, you know, uh, you know economies that, that derive important revenue sources from tourism, so beyond the airlines. So the point I'm making, I think we are on that cycle where the size of government uh, grows because we are in bad times. Now, whether that trend persists or whether at some point it begins to get reversed at a later date as we saw in the 1990s as countries began to emerge from the debt overhang, um, we will cross that bridge at that time. But I, I do think in terms of your question on institutions, you know, the, the concerns we're gonna have are not new concerns. It's a question also of efficiency. You know, how efficient, if, okay, so the government takes it over so it doesn't completely go under, but does it not go under because it is the government and they also have, you know, internal sources of funding, um, you know, uh, or does it not go over because you have, you know, a real meaningful restructuring? And I don't mean restructuring on the financial side, but on the real side. And, and you know, uh, we get more efficient corporates, enterprises, banks, whatever. Um, I, I think that, that, that um, you know, the historical evidence uh, is, you know, one that casts a lot of doubt also on how well uh, governments, you know, uh, do in, 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 in on the efficiency score. I mean, there's a whole literature on, you know, why the, you know, governments needed to get out of the business of allocation of credit, for example. Um, but, you know, uh, um, I, I think we will go through that process, whether the government is efficient or not, if indeed the situation that we're in is one of, of a protracted, a more protracted slump. We're in that upswing stage and we will probably be in that upswing stage on the size of government for a while, I would say. Thank you. Um, Beata, would you like to come in on, on, on that question? Obviously, you know, the EBRD, 
predominantly promoting the private sector, but that has changed over the 30 years, the, the importance of, of institutions, the, the, the development of structures, uh, the importance, the role that the, the state can play, the beneficent role that the state can play in, in, in allowing the private sector to flourish. How do you ensure that going forward? So thank you, Tony. So in advanced countries, when we are talking about government taking equity stakes in private firms, we are worried about taxpayers being compensated fairly once things go back to normal, right? once there is a recovery. But in countries with weak institutions, like countries where we are active, you know, we worry about the toxic cocktail of nepotism, of corruption, and perhaps later crony privatizations. So you know, the concern is, will we have a deja vu of the 1990s? Or if there is no crony privatization, will there be never any privatization because vested interest will become entrenched? And you know, these, these, these worries are real. If you look across the countries where we are active, you know, in three quarters of countries, it's high level officials who sit on boards of state-owned enterprises. And it's only in a minority of uh, countries where the appointments to the boards are made based on merit or on qualifications. Now, why, why the greater presence of state-owned enterprises does not augur well for recovery? Carmen mentioned lower efficiency. Obviously, we have a lot of evidence on SOEs being less innovative. But there's also a bigger worry because you know, in half of the countries where we are active, um, the ministry that will manage an SOE is also responsible for regulating the sector. And that means that the playing field may be tilted to the advantage of SOEs. And actually the data show that only a tenth of countries have some provisions where, which explicitly prohibit that. So we may find ourselves in a situation where these less efficient, less innovative SOEs are actually given advantage at the expense of private sector. Now, when we look at state-owned banks, what the international experience tells us is that they are subject to political cycles. They tend to lend, you know, pump credit before elections. That is done, you know, particularly in localities where the party in power is facing contested elections. And, you know, and that's true not only in emerging markets, you also see political cycle in German Landesbanks. Um, so these concerns are quite real. Thank you. I wanted to ask um, a quick question about inflation. The, the orthodoxy seems to be that we are much more in danger of deflation than inflation. Martin, over a year ago in, in a piece about debt, you, you, you eloquently quoted Robert Frost talking about the end of the world either being icy or fiery. Um, you came uh, and then you asked the question whether the debt mountain would, would, would end in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in the, uh, the ice of deflation or the, or the fire of inflation. But you also quoted Ray Dalio, I think, as saying uh, that uh, everything was going to be all right. And it would be like the, the baby bear's porridge and neither too hot nor too cold. Um, but are there, are there dangers? I mean, just to go back to, to, to what um, Beata was saying, if there isn't, um, if the institutions are weak, if if, um, if if central banks aren't allowed to be independent, if 
as a result of the, the, the declining uh, form of globalism, the globalization, that the, 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 the price pressure that came from there, is there a danger at some stage that, but under the sheer weight of, of, of printing money, monetization of debt, that, that inflation will ultimately come back as a major problem or is inflation now a thing of the past? So very important question. Let me just make one, if I may, tiny point on the, just a, on the last discussion, because I think it comes together very beautifully. The sort of famous line that governments don't get to choose winners, losers get to choose the government. And, <laughs> and, uh, and Carmen <laughs> described this beautifully. And what particularly worries me is that a lot of the, I, mean, I was just reading about, I shouldn't, it's a bit invidious that Italy is about to pump some of its, its European funds into Alitalia again. And the, uh, the point is that some of them may be just dead businesses because, you know, the world is changing. It's quite possible that governments will end up hand holding assets which really aren't worth much and closing those down becomes very, very difficult. So uh, I think it can be uh, a structural issue. Now, inflation. Um, I think it's perfectly possible that, that emerging countries which are run into basically international contract. They can't borrow anymore. Uh, they've effectively defaulted. They're not, uh, then turn to the domestic printing press. Uh, there are countries which Carmen knows better than I do, but we know there that have a history of this and they will be perfectly able to create domestic inflation. Um, and indeed my strong impression, and I won't name names, is some of them are doing it right now. So uh, emerging market inflationary conditions, because of the capacity problem we discussed, are quite plausible. Now, what you're talking about is something, I think, what you're already getting into something much more fundamental, which is a global inflationary process, which, which would therefore be an inflation of the major currencies. Uh, so the 70s, uh, you know, the last time we had major inflation in, um, significant inflation, major currencies, not obviously hyperinflation, but 10% plus. In the UK, it's peaked at 25%. In America, I think it was a bit above 10. I can't, uh, okay. Um, could that happen? Um, well, my response to that is it need not happen. The conditions at the moment are ones globally in which it ought not to happen. Um, uh, but I would never rule it out for two reasons. Institutional integrity is always uh, conditional. And I don't think it's terribly difficult to see that institutional integrity is in question in one or two really important countries, right? You know, just think about that. Are there conditions in which the US Fed would cease to be independent? Of course there are, obviously. I mean, you'd have to be foolish not to do that. Or the Bank of England. Uh, I think the ECB is relatively shielded, but not perfectly. And the BOJ is, is clearly under, under fiscal domination. Uh, that hasn't been a problem so far. So that, first of all, institutional integrity. And secondly, could circumstances arise in which managing debt becomes impossible? Yeah, if real interest rates go well above growth rates for a sustained period, 
uh, on sovereign debt, they'll be in a terrible mess given the legacy of this crisis. It's not where we are now. Could that happen? Well, I could go through scenarios in which it happens. I don't think they're enormously likely, but Charles Goddard, who is not a full, very well-known economist, has written a book which argues that global conditions are going to change sufficiently to drive real interest rates up significantly. Basically, in his argument is savings are going to fall dramatically for demographic reasons. I'm not completely persuaded but anyone who rules out the possibility that a combination of underlying changes in real conditions, failure to do debt management prof professionally and properly, which I am a bit concerned about, the borrowing far too short term in my view, and the subversion of institutions in core countries by irresponsible noodles in power, these things can happen. They've happened before. It would be foolish to rule them out. Thank you, Martin, very much indeed. I'm sure Carmen agrees. <laughs> That's Just need to know history. Messes happen. I'll, um, I'm, I'm going to turn to the audience in in uh, two minutes. I just want to do a very quick question on um, build back better. Um, everybody's talking about build back better. Everybody's talking about still delivering. Um, the sustainable development goals that people were worried about delivering by 2030 last year, so they must be even more worried about it now. Is it possible to deliver the Paris Climate Agreement at a time when economic fires are just being put out? Um, do, do people have the mental space to, to deal with this is, these issues at the same time as dealing with a health pandemic, an economic crisis, and possibly a financial crisis? Maybe Beata, do you want to care for that? So we did recently a survey asking people, has your concern about climate change increased as a result of the pandemic? And you know, 30% of people in Poland said yes, even larger number in Egypt, you know, 20% in Belarus. So I certainly think that the pandemic has drawn attention to climate change. The question is. Will, there, will it be possible to build uh, consensus around it? Will politicians have an incentive to, to start a dialogue about this? You know, if we go back 30 years to, you know, what was driving reforms in Eastern Europe, it was EU accession. It was this external anchor that gave direction to reforms and, you know, parties from all sides agreed that this was the overarching goal and it wasn't questioned. So in my mind, you know, the, the puzzle is could or the, the challenge is how do we make climate change such an anchor that will give direction to reform, um, particularly in the new EU member states, because they stand to get a lot of funds from the EU uh, for this purpose. So actually, um, this restructuring of the economy um, in, in order to uh, accommodate low carbon transition is something that they could do. And because right now the old engines of growth are being exhausted, you know, they've done catch up growth, they need growth based on innovation, this is an opportunity. But will there be enough um, political will? And here it's the role of the young people uh, who can change the political discourse, right? We know young people vote less frequently 
than elderly. They are also more concerned about climate change. We have climate strikes in Eastern Europe. Will they seize the opportunity to change the political discourse? Thank you, Carmen Reinhardt, the, the ability to drive that through the SDGs and, and, the, and the climate accord. Can that be delivered? I, I, I still, can I go back for a minute to the inflation issue because I- Oh think yes, please. It, 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 it's, uh, I wanted to add, and, and Martin is right, I agree with <laughs> what, what he said. And, and I wanted on, on the issue uh, that I would like to add is institutions do change over time. And I don't think it's an accident that the big global emergence of the importance of central bank independence only really came around after World War II debt loads had been worked down. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because even though in the US you had the Fed Treasury Accord in 1951 uh, the Fed had a, the even keel policy uh, of coordinating with the Treasury and so on well into really the 70s. And it was really the, the spike in inflation that turned things around in terms of, you know, the big central bank independence. So, you know, I, I, I think that, that that's something to consider. The, the, the other point I wanted to make on the inflation side is... Uh, apart from reiterating never say never, um, is that, you know, in the 1970s, we had a tight, well-defined uh, shock that we could point to and say, this was the supply shock. We had an oil shock. In effect, you could see it in the relative price of oil. It was neatly packaged, if you will. I think we're having not one supply shock. I think we're having a lot of supply shocks at the moment, too. COVID is not just impacting aggregate demand in a massive way, but I think it is also, you know, having an impact on, on supply side that you big reallocations of uh, across industries. And we know transitions can't occur instantaneously. So I, I do think we need to keep an open mind, not for the near term, not for, we're, I don't think any of us are, are talking about over the very near term, but I think um, there's a lot of uncertainties of what potential growth rates uh, are going to look like when the dust settle and, and uh, how quickly economies can transition across sectors. So, you know, we, I think we need to keep an open mind on that. Um, on, the, on the question of building back better and, and green. Um, I, 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 I think I, I subscribe to, to you know, the, the, the view that Beata, uh, uh, you know, was sharing with us that I think there is a willingness. Um, what concerns me more is not a reorientation so much of the type of investment, but of any investment at all. Meaning uh, the countries, the, the discussion we've been having on debt is very pertinent to a discussion on investment of any kind. Uh, in effect, the big adjustment factor, especially in Latin America, more than in Asia during the 80s to deal with the 80s, uh, was 
you know, not the, 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 the contraction in fixed investment uh, was proportionally much bigger than the contraction in either public or private consumption. Um, so what I'm, this importantly gets to how quickly can we make inroads? That's in, in the more extreme cases of, of countries that are having problems. How about the advanced economies? Well, in the advanced economies, uh, you know, I think um, the point that I'm making about declines in investment uh, being particularly likely uh, during downturns where uncertainty is, is, is its greatest because of when you look at the national income accounts, the component of the national income accounts that is most sensitive to uncertainty is, is fixed investment. And so I think the building back better, I think will happen. I think that there, there is a, a, a strong uh, uh, shift in, 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 in the need for, for better investment. What I am highlighting is that that pace may be quite sluggish uh, for some time because I think, uh, you know, because of both uh, private sector uncertainty and public sector constraints in many, uh, in many cases, the progression I think would be, will be slower than what we would like. Thank you. I'd like to go to some of the questions that are coming from uh, the virtual floor from Facebook and I think from Zoom as well. Precisely on that point, Eric Grigorian has said, do you consider the possibility of making debt for climate swap in developing countries? It will help countries develop climate finance, adaptation and mitigation measures and fulfill Paris Agreement obligations. Is that something that's being discussed? Is that a possibility? Who would like to take that I, I would, so the point that I would like to uh, uh, make is that I think in the uh, multilateral community and in the, in the, you know, the, 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 that are looking and trying to revisit options and financial architecture, I think, uh, you know, uh, the kind of uh, debt for, you know, a, a, an environmentally friendly version of a debt for equity swap is, you know, in that menu. Uh, whether, you know, that is a feasible alternative uh, as a major source of debt restructuring, I think, again, the, so far, the, the, the direction is everything is more likely to be uh, case by case. But that, that the menu, the point, the big point that I'm making is that the menu of options that are being contemplated is, you know, we, we are dealing just as in fiscal and monetary, we've seen, you know, uh, think a lot of thinking out of the box, I think, in, in, uh, you know, debt, debt restructuring and in, uh, um, you know, new financial architecture. This is also the time for, for 
you know, uh, fostering more uh, out of the box uh, by historic standard, out of the box uh, solutions. Thanks very much indeed. There's a question here um, from Andrea Shalal, who, um, which probably will only be answered by Martin. And, and there are some assumptions in the in the question. How much will actually the change in US administration change the US leadership given Biden promises to focus on domestic issues? What should the US do on debt relief? Um, I, I don't think we can assume the, 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 uh, the result of the, um, the election yet, but just to go back to what one would want from the any US um, administration um, and how the most important economy in the world should respond to this um, debt question. We've, we've touched on it slightly, but Martin, do you want to go back into that? My assumption is we know reasonably well what would happen if what Mr. Trump were re-elected, um, more of the same, um, and we know what won't happen. Um, in terms of Mr. Biden, um, it's, I think in a sort of fundamental way, we don't know. His broad intentions are clear. His administration will be more, more multilaterally inclined, would like to mend fences with allies and has indicated very considerable interest in the climate issue. Um, uh, but uh, beyond that, as the questioner asks, um, uh, he will be subject to at least three or four major constraints, which are structural. Um, first, domestic priorities. I presume his first domestic priority will be to get to do get policy on the pandemic domestically under control, and and he's indicated that um, he will obviously want to get Congress to support a relief package of some kind. And a lot will depend on the, uh, if you were president, on the composition of Congress, which we don't, well, it's also in question. Um, uh, and I think the domestic priorities would indeed be overwhelming. Um, third, in order to get something done globally on the issues we've been talking about, particularly climate, um, as a central part of this, that requires global agreement. And the most important player by far in this issue is China. Um, there is no climate agreement, which isn't an agreement with China. And what China has put forward so far is inadequate, um, just objectively so. It, won't, it will not allow us to solve the problem in time. So that's an immensely challenging issue. And if China and a few other major emerging and developing countries are not engaged fully, as well as the US, we can't solve the problem because it's a global problem. How he's going to address that issue, I don't know. And what priority will give to it over the, given all the other problems, I don't know. But my guess is, and that's why I remain very skeptical on this notion that we will really do something globally, is the only way that could be done is if the US's leader with all the other major countries, including China, were to say, our priority in this decay, overwhelming priority, is a global transformation on the climate issue, a global trend, which means basically all the major countries, all the G20. And this is the priority, and this is what we're going to do to bring that about. And we all agree on these elements. And what we've agreed so far is totally inadequate. 
And I don't think that's what we're likely to see. It's what I would quite like to see. And remember, every country in the world has huge domestic challenges which emerge out of this crisis, crisis challenges of inequality, um, um, many challenges of slow growth, fiscal challenges, which will get in the way of this achievement. So uh, it's going to be very, very difficult to see a real transformation. I hope, hope we will, but it, I don't think we should hope to expect too much. Tony, if I could uh, jump in here, because this discussion of green and debt relief is actually tied together, right? Because, you know, one of the challenges to debt relief is to convince taxpayers in rich countries that this, this should happen, right? The appetite for international aid for, you know, debt relief is lower and lower because every country sees how it will have to deal with its own problems. And I suspect that in China, it is also hard to sell debt relief domestically, right? Particularly, presumably because many Chinese do not view themselves as, as very rich. So I wonder whether buying better or greater commitments on the climate front in exchange for debt relief could help the narrative and could help convince uh, taxpayers. Right? But that is conditional on what Martin was saying, that we have some sort of global initiative with the US leadership. And uh, you know, we agree this is the decade um, to deal with climate change. Thank you, Beata. Uh, if I may just Please. add one dimension that very connected to the issue of debt restructuring. Uh, one thing that would be very important for the US and ideally also the UK and uh, other financial centers uh, is on the statutory side. You know, in the US, you know, you could declare war with 51% majority yet to restructure debt uh, what is often required is, you know, 75%, 80% agreement among creditors. And as Martin was talking about, um, you know, there are important, important bondholders that can really derail uh, a restructuring. And in effect, my, my co-author, Christoph Trebisch, and, and uh, other work has been documenting the rise in litigation costs associated with debt restructuring. So what I'm talking about uh, are also uh, legislative, you know, statutory changes that could simply mean all you need is a majority. All you need is 51% uh, to get a, a, a debt agreement, um, which, you know, it, it's, it would be useful in dealing with a, what's been a rising problem with holdouts uh, and, you know, with a larger concentration among, you know, very powerful uh, bondholders. Um, and, you know, the, the complementary one is, is something akin to what the UK has already done on vulture funds as well, you know, uh, and Belgium also has uh, some legislation on vulture funds. These are uh, legislative you know, statutory changes that could help uh, simplify and speed up uh, what are likely to be very, 
you know, ex ante very charged and cumbersome uh, debt restructurings. Let's, let's not forget about that because this goes to the issue that we don't have an SDRM or anything like. So, so here are some things that, that the financial centers uh, could do on that, on that score. Thank you very much indeed. I'm going to take two or three more questions from the floor. Aaron Eglitis says, uh, maybe this is one for, for Beata, will Eastern European debt levels later return to pre-crisis levels? Are we seeing a structural shift in higher debt ratios following the global financial crisis of 2008 and the COVID pandemic? I think we need to learn to live with higher levels of debt. I don't think that, you know, these, these high debt levels will magically disappear, right? If we are facing one in 50 years shock, you know, we should be repaying these debts over 50 years. And we have learned after the financial crisis that premature austerity will backfire. So I think, you know, we are facing sort of a, a new paradigm, a paradigm shift. Now debt levels will remain higher for the foreseeable future. And there's one question here, which we haven't we haven't touched on this, and it's important, um, from Pravel Rajgwali. Um, how can governments be able to ensure debt transparency among bilateral creditors? And that seems to be one of the major sort of sticking points of the G20 to promote some sort of um, transparency of debt, and seems to be one of the problems in in, in resolution. So maybe Carmen, could you could you take that one? So. Before I get into what is being done and has been done and is continuing to be done, uh, let me flag also how, trans how critical transparency is. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier that I had done work on the uh, growth of, uh, you know, the development of Chinese overseas lending. Um, and a critical uh, issue that we flag in that study is the problem of hidden debts. You know, that a lot of the borrowing really does not show up. It's not reported. And by contract, you know, in the, in the bilateral contracts, we have found exposed that many had non-disclosure rules. So from a surveillance standpoint, uh, the IMF, the World Bank, or any, anyone else, uh, how could you do surveillance if you, if you're, estimate of the stock of actual debt is way off base. That's, that's a big surveillance problem. So it's, it's it, you know, secondly, um, the private creditors may be a, lo a lot more willing to lend uh, to a country if they think, A, that its stock of debt is much lower, so that they're a lower risk, and B, they're not aware that there may be, or indeed, indeed there is, a senior creditor uh, ahead of them. Um, and so debt transparency, you know, it, 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 it has big bearing on, on the issue of transparency with regards to Chinese debt, but it's much, much bigger than that. Um, and, you know, hidden debts are, are you know, have been chronically uh, a problem also in the form of contingent liabilities, you know, state-owned enterprises that don't show up anywhere and at the last minute when the crisis hits uh you know everyone finds out that their debt stocks are are much greater so in the context of fostering uh, uh more debt transparency 
um, more is being asked uh, of countries. In effect, you know, the World Bank who collects and has been since 1952 uh, collecting the data on, on, on the, you know, the, da the debt reporting system. Uh, the questionnaires are, are much more about more disclosure uh, in the context of the DSSI uh, uh, initiative, um, a new website basically details, you know, how much um, uh, the bilateral dimension of, of, of debts and the bilateral dimension of debt repayments that had not been in the past disclosed uh, is now, you know, much more open uh, it, it's publicly, publicly reported. So there are a great many initiatives on providing more granularity. It, I, I, look, I, I think in the end, it boils down to citizens uh, across the world also being able to figure out, uh, you know, uh, who their country's indebted to, how much, you know, what, what are the amounts outstanding and, and you know, have a more accurate um, you know, a, a, a more accurate view of what their ultimate uh, uh, liabilities are. Thank you very much. One last question from the floor comes from Philip Petzold. Uh, isn't the elephant in the room that countries' debt is more and more owned by sovereigns and less by private investors? This applies to Eurozone countries, but, also, but since the COVID pandemic, we also see these developments in emerging markets in addition to the stated high exposure to China. Seems that the global debt restructuring is more than ever dependent on a new Paris club agreement on how to deal with sovereign debt and haircuts taken by taxpayers. Who would like to take that? I, I can offer some, so, so I don't know that in every dimension, there is more debt in official hands than in private hands. Let me, <clears throat> in the advanced economies, clearly there is. Who was big, big buyer of, of government debt, you know, in, in very central banks, right? So that's, that's you know, you have a, 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 a much more expanded role for central banks. Uh, in emerging markets after COVID, central banks have also uh, you know, um, played a much bigger role in the purchases of, of new debt issues. Uh, however, on the officials, so that's the role of central banks. That's a bigger role of central banks. But on the official side uh, versus the private side, I, it's, it's not clear to me because I mentioned that one element of growth in international lending had been indeed official, it's China. But at the same time, um, Paris Club uh, creditors scaled back. Um, and so, you know, the, the Western or, you know, more traditional um, uh, Paris Club creditor have, you know, their, their, their lending has, has been scaled back uh, you know, post the HIPIC initiative. Um, and finally, I, I'd like to point out that we can't lose sight that for many uh, frontier economies, uh, bond issuance, 
flourished in the last decade because this is, you know, low for long also meant what I said earlier in an earlier remark, search for yield. Part of the search for yield uh, went into, you know, high yield corporates and part of it found its way to, uh, you know, high yield debt in frontier economy. So, you know, I would not say that it's an unambiguous giveaway uh, that the official sector is, 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 you know, that much bigger for everyone. There are countries where that's the case, but for many others, it is not. It is not. Can I just add one small point? Carmen, thank you very much. Um, it's just that Martin. I think it's very important, and I think it follows from this, not to draw these lines too tightly, these distinctions. So let's think about the story on Eurozone debt, which a lot ended up in as debt owed by the Greek government to Eurozone sovereigns. Um, how did that happen? Well, it started as private lending, right? Uh, the private lending went sensationally bad. Uh, the Eurozone governments, just, much of that lending was to, to the Greek government, but some of it was to private Greek entities. That went bad and fell into the banks and the Greek government bailed them out. Um, so it's converted into government debt. I mean, that's more complicated. Then the uh, the creditor governments, the governments of the creditor institution decided they wouldn't want, didn't want them all to write off all these debts because it would look so embarrassing. So they took over the debts, essentially refinanced the, their, the German banks and the French banks, making it less clear how badly regulation had gone. And it ended up as government debt. The point I'm making is, which is, I think, a crucial point, is in crisis situations like this, borderlines between what starts as private debt, even private debt to private people, can in many ways end up as government debt. And I think one of the points we're making is, it, it is indeed a lot of it is private, but there will now be political decisions which will decide how much of this will collapse, you know, just go into default and private sector will bear losses, how much of it will be nationalized. Um, uh, and, and in that process, then how will it be handled? I would guess that two or three years from now, it will be quite true that a lot of this debt is on public sector balance sheets, but I'm not sure. Uh, at the very least, which is where I do agree with the questioner, the public sector will play an enormous role in resolving these debt problems. Um, and that will include, of course, the Chinese public sector. And that is likely to be very, very messy. And that's what happened, of course, you know, the Latin American debt crisis started with debt owed to Western banks, ended up as a sovereign decision-making process. That's quite likely to happen again. Martin. Martin, thank you very much indeed. Um, in this last minute, I'd like you all, if you would like to, to make one recommendation to the G20 as they meet next month. What's the one thing you want to hear? Martin, we'll stick with you and then go to each of the panellists before we close. I've made my biggest one that we need an SDRM. Uh, so I've done, I'll park that, I've made it once. Uh, so I would say the most important thing 
can't happen now, but the most important thing is that all the G20 countries agree a strategy uh, for handling this, the economic side of the COVID crisis. And that means we have to cooperate with China uh, and China has to cooperate with us. And I think that's incredibly important because otherwise, and this is a general point, we can't manage the world anymore. And it may be very nice to have a cold war with China, but the world is going to go to hell if that's actually how we approach everything. So that's the biggest recommendation is actually to try to recognize and deal with the world as it is, not the world that some Western leaders wish that we were in. Thank you, Martin. Carmen. This is not the moment of being timid on a debt crisis resolution that uh, proposals need to be bold in, in terms of uh, delivering debt reduction for the debtors, because if not, this is the point we have been making here, the risks of the alternative, the risk of, 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 of a lost decade are, are, are very big. So be bold. Uh, and that means, you know, moving much more, not just more with, with bigger, uh, more ambitious initiatives on, on debt reduction, but also moving rapidly. I cannot be very original, but um, let me just follow up on the point Martin made, right? German and French banks benefited greatly with how the Greek debt crisis was handled, but that has not entered the public debate, particularly in Germany. So I think you know, we need to come clean with the public in a sense about why we want debt restructuring and why it matters for taxpayers in rich countries. And you know, we shouldn't be kicking can down the road because this will only compound the problems. Thank you all very much indeed. Um, this episode has been part of the coronavirus special series. Will there be a lost decade of debt, COVID-19 and developing economies? We will be posting a podcast of today's session later. You can download it on iTunes and review it and rating it will uh, help others to find us. My name is Tony Williams. I'm looking forward to our next discussion on the 10th of November for the launch of the transition report. Stay safe, goodbye, and thank you very much to Carmen Reinhardt, Martin Wolf, Beatia Volkic, and all of you for taking part. Thank you very much indeed. You are listening to Coronavirus Special, brought to you by EBRD.